So today we are looking at contraception. Um, we have five weeks left, and in a sense, if we, not five weeks, we have five lectures left. If we use all of those five lectures on contraception because of remaining questions, that would be fine. This is, in a sense, the goal of where a huge amount of what we've been looking at in this course has been aiming. So I want you to feel free to interrupt me, to say that just doesn't make sense, or I don't get it, or I don't find that convincing. Um, this is important. This is, practically speaking, for our parishioners, where it says the rubber hits the road. Um, most of our parishioners aren't directly concerned with homosexuality. Um, a lot of the other things we've looked at, this is where things get practical. Um, and with a lot of our parishioners, sadly, many of them want to say that what the church teaches about sex just is none of their business. Um, that God doesn't get a look in in the bedroom. That maybe I'm happy to go to Mass on a Sunday, but um, that doesn't mean anything else should interfere with these aspects of my lives. And yet, you know the saying, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. If we can have one bit of our life that we say Jesus doesn't get a look in there, then he isn't Lord. Um, and he has to be Lord of everything, therefore, in my life, including the bedroom. And that it's good for us that he is Lord of everything. That it fulfills us in everything. Um, so, contraception... Um, Practically, pivotally important for most of our parishioners, uh, this whole set of issues. Just to remind you where our course plan has been heading building up to this. So I started with a historical overview. We looked at pagan Canaan. We looked at pagan Greece and Rome. And we looked at what an unchaste world was like and that it wasn't a great place, a place of child sacrifice, a place of ritualized prostitution, the unchaste world was a less happy world. We looked at what the scriptures have to say about sex, about how these two things that we're looking at today, union and fertility, these two meanings are the whole meaning of sexuality running right the way through the biblical vision of sex. We looked at gender ideology and where gender fits in the plan of God and that the division of the sexes isn't some random thing that we can impose our own gender ideology on top of but is part of the plan of the creator the division of male and female ordered to the union of male and female and a union that is inherently fruitful we looked following at that from on from that at explicitly the, the end or ends of marriage and sexuality, how sexuality is of itself ordered towards procreation, union, a remedy for concupiscence. We looked at the virtue of chastity. We looked at the theology of John Paul II as uh, this great modern reworking and articulation of everything I've just said. And then the last few lectures we've been looking at, two things this in a sense are different 
rejections, failing to live out that meaning of sexuality, namely homosexuality, where the procreative end or the authentic union is put aside, and masturbation, where the pleasure is pursued um, without the authentic meaning of what it's about. So contraception, I haven't wanted to start our course talking about that. I've wanted, in a sense, to look at it so that it, almost at the end, so that it makes sense in the light of all these other things. And I hope that as we get to the end, it makes a bit more sense why we looked at those things and what order we looked at them in. So, contraception. Um, contraception and the natural law. So you've all done your assignment on this. So hopefully what I'm going to be running through with you in this lecture and the next lecture, and if with questions and answers we make it a third lecture, that's fine as well. Um, what I'm saying today isn't going to be completely new, but um, it's always worthy, I think, to re package it in a lecture format, even if you've done an assignment on it. So as I've structured our lecture timetable, we've got two lectures, one on the naturalist approach of Janet Smith, and the other on the anti-naturalist approach of Germain Griset and his school. And those are the two opinions you were contrasting in your assignment. So today, we're looking at Janet Smith. Um, and you can see I have 12 pages of notes for us to do. I'm quite happy in a sense if that takes us two lectures, not one. That means you'll have, um, so if you've looked at the lecture structure, the last two assigned lectures are actually matters that you'll overlap in pastoral theology. And I didn't realize you were gonna have the whole Augustine Way thing going on here actually that's already covered for you things I was thinking I might do in that last session lecture-wise. So um, I'm fine if this contraception focus takes us longer than initially marked out on the lecture plan. Okay, so looking to the lecture notes, starting on page one. So contraception, the naturalist, the naturalist argument against the immorality of contraception, especially as articulated by Janet Smith. And this first page, I just have what hopefully is just reviewing from your fundamental moral theology course. Um, so natural law, what do we mean by natural law? The knowledge of right and wrong we have with the light of unaided reason. So unaided reason meaning I don't have the Bible, I don't have tradition, I don't know Jesus Christ, but reason is still able to know so many things. And part of what the church teaches is that that includes all of the ethical laws that relate to sexuality, including contraception. That the truth about contraception is beauty is seen more clearly in the light of Jesus Christ in the Bible. But the basic truth is accessible just by unaided reason. But how? How do you structure a natural law argument? How does reason figure out that contraception is intrinsically evil? But as I say, there are the two rival theories 
broadly speaking, uh, in natural law. The first, as we're going to be looking at today, is that we can deduce the natural law from our knowledge of human nature. And this is what's called, as you read in that book, therefore ethical naturalism. Not everybody uses that phrase, but I think that is a, a good turn of phrase to describe it. I give a very brief example there. The nature of eating is primarily about nourishment. And thus gluttony is a sin because it violates the nature of the activity of eating. So you look at nature and you can deduce a law from that about how to behave. That's the, the basic structure of that approach to natural law. But the rival theory, the second theory, says the reverse. It says we cannot deduce ethical laws from nature. So this philosophically takes its roots from David Hume in the 18th century with this phrase, you cannot develop an ought from an is. How thoroughly did you cover this in fundamental moral theology? You did it with Father McMahon? And so he's a disciple of Griset, so a disciple of this second approach. Um, so I'm guessing you've got that explicitly argued, or not? Well, he was, he was saying that God is in position to know what is for us. So we, we let God, so his wisdom is not natural or is God is in the best position to know what is for us. And so in the Griset school, law and nature are connected they all come from god but you can't know the law by knowing nature you somehow know the law as a thing in itself we'll come on to that when we look at griset in the next lecture topic but it's an utter rejection of this naturalist approach where we study nature to figure out what the law is so just briefly, there, I think Germain Griset, um, you know, he died very recently, just two years ago, developed an entire ethical system accepting Hume's premise. And this is called sometimes anti-naturalism, therefore. And to note two in a sense, allied groups critiquing Janet Smith's naturalist approach. You have Catholic progressives. So um, people like Charles Curran, um, who complained about what he called physicalism. So say that I descriptions of the sexual act that, as he would put it, identify the demands of the natural law with physical and biological processes, such that the individual may not interfere with the animal processes and finalities of his body. I.e. condoms are wrong, because they stop semen reaching its physical goal. That's the physical structure of what's looked at there. And Curran says that's, that, he calls that physicalism. Um, and I note that's a stereotype of a Thomistical analysis. It's not an authentically Thomistic analysis. Um, but you did get a 
suppose you still get progressives making this complaint. Kind of allied with them, there are secular writers attacking Catholic natural law. As I say, the secular critics of natural law similarly mistakenly claim that natural law theory says that critics may not oppose the workings of nature. For example, British philosopher um, Mary Warnock critiques natural law ethics by commenting on hip replacements, saying nothing could be less natural than a plastic hip joint, yet hip replacement surgery is seldom objected to on the ground that it is contrary to nature. And note, she has equated artificial with unnatural. She doesn't seem to realize she's done that, but that, in the Catholic mindset, that isn't the same thing. Artificial can work with nature. Artificial doesn't mean it's contrary to nature. Come back to that point later. Um, I also notice I put in italics there, Warnock shares the modern disregard for metaphysics. She doesn't use any concept of nature understood in terms of metaphysics as indicating the type of a thing and thus how it should function and be used. So you do have various schools attacking this whole thing of figuring out the, na the natural law by looking at nature. But that's exactly what we're going to aim to, to do today. So, over the page. Um, any questions before we turn the page? That is basically just summarizing in a broad brush stroke some bits of fundamental moral theology. Okay, page two here. I'm trying to describe the significance to you of this single author, Janet Smith. Um, so she was born, as I indicate there, in 1950. She's now 70, therefore only just retired last year um, and I said the turning of the tide I would mark her as a figure um, who was part of a turning of the tide in the church that happened in the 1990s now taking a step back historically I note there from 1968 the year Humanivita was published until 1991 the prime defenders of the church's teaching that contraception is intrinsic to evil were Germaine Grise and his GBFM. So that's um, Grise, Joseph Boyle, John Finnis, and William May. Um, these four figures in particular developed this school of thought. Um, as I say, that, that they fought pretty much alone and they fought valiantly. They were isolated um, on all kinds of levels from the, the mainstream. And I say, many ridiculed the church's conclusion by ridiculing Griset's arguments. Uh, Griset's system was attacked as legalistic. It was attacked as divorced from humanity. So it focused, as we'll look, and as you'd have read, on these abstract goods that human humans are inclined to, rather than focusing on humans. So I and those critical of him it can feel somehow divorced from you, this set of legal obligations. Um, and I say many failed to note that the traditional argument wasn't Grise. 
but I can remember when I was in seminary so that professor teaching me sexual ethics, he didn't believe in the church's teaching on all kinds of issues. Um, and he would attack Griset, thinking therefore he was attacking the church. Um, so I can remember we used to do seminar classes. Um, I can remember being sat in a room having to discuss Griset's work, which was the only presentation on contraception we ever got, was what Griset said. Um, and I can remember my professor ridiculing Griset and his argument um, and demanding that I justify Griset. Um, but it was presented as the only thing there was, that that is being Catholic if you want to be that kind of Catholic. Um, so for pretty much an entire generation, that was the only defense of the church's teaching that was out there. And it wasn't a very good defense, in my opinion. As I say, there was a sea change in the 1990s, and a number of factors um, I would want to point out. I think Janet Smith was a pivotal part of that. So 1991, um, this book, I have a very old faded copy. Brian has a slightly newer, nicer looking copy. Um, Janet Smith, a generation later. Um, her analysis isn't rooted in the abstract legal principles of Griset and his school. It's rooted instead in human nature, rooted with that in the teleology of human organs and their related acts. So you're saying to somebody, you need to do this because you are this kind of thing. It, it, it's about you. Her analysis, as I say, that drew on traditional Thomism, but mixed with John Paul II's personalism, his theology of the body, as well as some other strains of thought. So it's not just the old Aquinas. Um, there's a lot of other stuff blended in there, but primarily through the lens of St. Thomas. I know there are also the 90s, um, 1997, Christopher West, so he was born a year before me, which I know you think that means he's very old, um, <laughs> so he'd be 51 now. Um, but 1997, he started his popular teaching on marriage and the theology of the body, um, popularized John Paul II. With that, somehow gave a popular presentation of the church's teaching about sex. And again, Historically, sociologically within the church, that's very significant to understand where we're at and how we got to be here. Um, so nonetheless, uh, the Griset Boyle Finis May School continues to be highly influential. In many seminaries, this one included, moral theology teaching switches from anti-naturalist to naturalist positions almost every time a professor changes. Um, and so it's statistically fairly possible that I will be replaced by someone of the Griset school. I think that school is on the decline because Thomism is very much in the ascendancy. But there are still a lot of people out there. Um, and I very explicitly am trying to expose you to both schools of thought. I want you to both get enough of Griset 
that you've had a, a first-hand contact with him, even though I want you to have a, a bigger exposure to Smith. Uh, Janet Smith retired from seminary teaching, so she was teaching in Detroit right up until last year. Um, she's now become a powerful campaigner exposing the, conspiracy, uh, the conspiracies of sexual deviance in the priesthood and the episcopate. So just as she retired, the whole McCarrick thing blew up, and she's become, I think, a very important, and because she has been so respected in something completely different, an important voice exposing, calling the bishops to account on a number of those related things. So Janet Smith and the turning of the tide, a figure very influential. Um, so what does she say? That's what I want us to start looking at now on page So, called this page traditional to mystic natural law. Um, now, this label traditional Thomist, um, there are people in the Griset school that object to that, saying, no, we're the traditional Thomists. Um, Griset himself initially claimed to be presenting Thomas, then later said, well, no, I'm not presenting Thomas, but I think I'm right in my school anyway, which, you know, is a perfectly respectful position. I have two opinions I think St. Thomas is wrong about, um, one of them being the Immaculate Conception, um, so I'm on pretty solid grounds on that one. You know, it's, so you can agree, disagree with St. Thomas and be orthodox, um, but this label, traditional Thomists, generally speaking in the church now, in moral theology would be linked to Janet Smith and those with her. Okay, so start with a little section there, rooting ourselves back to Aristotle. So if we're going to think how we structure an argument, what we're presupposing, what is the Aristotelian basis for is ought reasoning? As you were taught fundamental moral theology, did is ought get used as a phrase? Mm, one of you is nodding your head, the rest of it either never heard it or you. Ah, okay. You didn't have... Mom. So you had Dr. Murphy? Okay. And he follows. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he follows. Um, he follows Ronheimer, who is a very. another respected author, much less widely followed than either Griset or Smith, but is orthodox, um, isn't my school. Um, okay, but so some of you had him instead um, as your background. Okay, rooting here in Aristotle. So there's this thing is ought. I'm going to explain what that means on this page. So first, metaphysics. Um, what does metaphysics tell us? Basically, we can know what a thing is. We can know it's nature. Now, obviously, if you remember nominalism, nominalism says the very opposite. There are still a lot of nominalists out there, even those that aren't called nominalists, who say you can't know what a thing is. Um, 
Aristotle, St. Thomas, yes, we can know what a thing is. We know things all the time. Um, we know what it is, what its nature is. Linked with that teleology, that all things act for a purpose, towards an end. And when you know a thing's nature, you know its end. And you can pretty much say the reverse too. If I know the end of a thing, I, with that, know what it is. I know its nature. Ethics. So this is now to our field. Ethics evaluates action in terms of the achievement of the end or the talos. Yeah, so this is a watch. If I call this a good watch, it means it tells the time. If it does not tell the time, it is a bad watch. Um, by knowing what a thing is, I'm able to evaluate, is it a good one or a bad one? I know its nature, I know what it is, what it does, and so I can say it's good or it's bad. This is a human being. If you know my nature, if you know my end, you're able to evaluate whether I am a good example of a human being or not. Um, and all my different activities, <coughs> similarly, the end of my different activities, I'm good or bad at it according to whether I achieve the goal as a teacher. If I succeed in you learning, then I am a good teacher. If you fail to learn in my class, I am a bad teacher. That is my function, my end, my talos, is to teach. Um, that's how we measure. Am I good or bad at it? Do I achieve the goal? Do I achieve the end? Sorry, back to my notes. Ethics evaluates action in terms of the achievement at the end or the tails. Um, ethics is concerned with things flourishing. Things flourish when they achieve their end. So humans ought to act so as to achieve their end well. Two examples there. A chef ought to act so as to cook and to cook well. You know, the, the people that cook for us, cook the best food I've had in pretty much any institution. Um, we judge them as good cooks according to what they provide us. Now, if they're, we don't know their private lives. They could be mass murderers when they're off the campus, but they're still a good chef, judging from the product they give us, judged by their function. Um, if they're a mass murderer, they're a lousy human being on that broader purpose. But um, you evaluate according to function. You evaluate according to end. Thus, the ought follows from the is of a thing, the is of an activity. A good act is evaluated as such by being in accord with function tables. Another example there, a bad act of speaking, or for example, lying to the listener that betrays the purpose of speech. Speech has a function, has an end, has a talos. If I'm lying, I'm betraying that function. So know a thing's function, end, 
ergon is the Greek term defining function, you need to know what it is. You need to know its nature. And therefore, ought follows from is. Okay, I then tried to spell this out with the example of eating. So an example showing is ought reasoning with respect to eating. So to eat morally, you need to know what a man is um, and what eating is as a sub-function of man, i.e. to know the purpose end of eating. So what is the nature of eating? Well, its end is sustenance. That's not complicated. Um, so pleasure attaches, but pleasure isn't the end. So if you remember, you know, we had a good long look at pleasure earlier in the course, that pleasure attaches is the completion of every activity. But as Aristotle says, if you try to pursue pleasure as a thing in itself, not as part of the activity, then everything goes wrong. So back to my notes here. So the end is sustenance, and the sustenance has to be the measure of proper eating. But you can also refer to secondary ends, such as human social interaction. So this analysis, you don't need to have only one end, but as in this example, one end is primary, but you'd have secondary ends in there related to. So, you know, as humans, we almost always eat with others. It's a social function as well as eating, uh, sustenance. But it is primarily about sustenance. So, dieting. Dieting is moral, because a rational man does regulate his food. Gluttony is immoral, because it's irrational. A irrational man eats according to his needs. There's an end purpose to eating. And you could say very obviously, um, excessive dieting is immoral because it is excessive, um, by definition. That you'd measure it by the end. Are you with me so far? Is what I'm stating too obvious? I don't So I can't hear over the fan. wouldn't be as primary in, in the Grise school. It, it, it's, it's there in terms of the pursuit of the basic human goods he talks about, but it's not the measure the way it is in this approach. We'll come on to Grise as our next topic. Um, and it may be you know more than I do about him. Um, so, so that's fine.
Okay, let's move on page four of my notes. So I'm going to, on this page, I'm coming back to this word physicalism, the allegation of physicalism, this why are you so obsessed with the body and its processes? Why does that matter? That's what this page is trying to look at explicitly. So physicalism and why the body's processes are relevant to morality. So as, as I say, first bullet point, the human body has a moral law written into it by the creator. You know, the, the law from Romans written onto the heart. Um, and not just literally the heart, but the human person. Um, now St. Thomas says that a law is a kind of rule or measure, and it can be in a thing in two ways, he says. As that which measures or rules, for example, a yardstick for measuring, as reason measures or rules. But it can also be in, in that which is measured or rules. For example, in a thing measured to size. As law as in those things that are inclined to something by reason of some law. So let me just repeat that again. Um, so you have a ruler, yeah, a yardstick. Um, that is, the law is in it, yeah? It is the, the, the thing measuring other things. But if I measure this book, and it is um, exactly eight and a half inches with my yardstick, then I've, I've put a measure into it by measuring it to be eight and a half inches, because that's what I wanted it to be. So the law can either be in the thing doing the measuring, the yardstick, or in the thing I've measured to size. Is it eight and a half? Okay. Um, okay, a better physical image from Russell Hittinger here about traffic. So law-abiding traffic. Well. What would you say the law is in, in that example? So popularly, uh, rather properly speaking, the law is in the mind of the legislator. That's what we mean by law. The legislator, he's passed the law saying, cars drive on this side, they stop at a red light, they go at this speed and this road, that speed and that road. Law is in the mind of the legislator, properly speaking. Derivatively speaking, it is in the mind of the motorists driving around who are following what the legislator has decreed. But in a very extended sense, we can actually say the law is in the physical flow of the traffic. So you can look at the physical flow of the traffic and you can say, ah, whenever cars come to a red light, they stop. You can say, ah, on these roads, cars go at that speed, but in these roads, they go at that speed. So you can actually look at the physical moving and deduce what the law must be. And even though you would see an occasional car go through a red light, the fact that you can see the general pattern would be enough for you to figure out what the law must be. So that's Hittinger's example of how actually the law can be in 
things. Which is an analogy for how the law is written into my body, into my physical structure. One day I'm going to win the lotto and I'm going to buy us a heating system that you can actually control in this place. Yeah? Yeah, gotta play to win. Yeah. <laughs> okay, back to my notes. So, um, my next bullet point, just where is this in the Bible? St. Paul talks about a law in my members. Um, members meaning bodily members, organs. Knowing the natural law. So, if the law is written in the body, then it can be known by looking at the body. You're right, Brian, it's a completely plucking out of context quote, but it is one of those quotes that is referred to in this regard. Um, it is one of the, the standard applications, but it isn't the context St. Paul is using it in. Okay, physical and biological processes of the body, what do they reveal? They reveal not only the working of the body, but the nature of the human person who has the body. That's, that's the point here. And this is what our whole body-soul unity is, is so important about. What we know about the body, we know about the person that has a body. Thus, quoting Humana Vitae, thus there is a need for reverence due to the whole or human organism and its natural functions. Now, how do we apply that reasoning to sex? So, sexual intercourse. To engage in sex morally, you need to know what a man is. And to know what sexual intercourse is as a sub-function of man. So, you know, the human person has many functions. I also have a general function to, to know and love God. Um, but the particular things I do, the particular human function, including the function of sex. Well, what is sex's function? So the nature of sex, as we've been repeating in many different contexts through this course, the nature of sex, the end is procreation and union, inseparably together. And this dual significance is indicated by examining the biological processes of the human body and the personal processes of human interaction. And that with that, as with eating, pleasure attaches, but pleasure isn't the end per se. Actions that violate the unitive dimension. So promiscuity, you've got one bit, you've got, um, what am I trying to say? You could, you could be wanting procreation with a great many women, but by promiscuity there isn't any real personal union. Rape even more so, uh, adding violence to that, that, you'd, that the unitive is violated, the unitive dimension of, of the sexual act. Acts that violate the procreative dimension, anal sex, oral sex, contraceptive sex. 
So let's pause briefly before turning the page here. The biological processes. So John Paul II in his Theology of the Body, he reflected on this in different ways, the, the talk of the language of the body. But the very structure of the sexual act at a physical level is obviously ordered towards procreation. The way the man and the woman's hormones change during the act, in the build-up to the act, after the act, their bodies are about the achievement of procreation. We now have lots of scientific studies that indicate to us how actually in that same biological functioning in the act, there are chemicals and hormones aimed at attaching these two individuals to each other. Um, so that the person you first have sex with, your first sexual encounter, there is a biological connection that happens there um, that is with you for life. Um, which is why people that are promiscuous over a long period of time are much more likely statistically to, to divorce because that whole bonding process that chemically happens in each sexual encounter is being disrupted, overlaid with a pattern of divorce in almost every promiscuous encounter. Um, one of the articles on, listed on the bibliography for the Educating in Chaste Love lecture um, refers to this. Um, so we can look at the biology. This tells us something, not just about the biology, but about the person and about the nature of the activity being engaged in. That it isn't just a biological process, it is a personal process. That it has an ordering, a telos, an end, that is this dual end of procreation and union. That's what we can look at the processes of the body it reveals to us the nature of the person and the nature of the sexual act. Okay, um, it's a big question. How is natural family planning different from contraception? Um, on the notes here, I've expanded that because I want us to come back to that thoroughly. So I'm gonna put the questions you raise it now on hold so that we come back to it with a fuller analysis. But what we were looking at last lecture on responsible parenthood is there are many grounds given by the church 
there are grounds for a couple to not seek to have a child at this time. But the question is, how do they go about seeking not to have a child? Contraception, we're indicating here, violates the nature of the act. Whereas abstaining doesn't violate the act. So I abstain on the days that my wife is fertile. We abstain on the days that my wife is fertile because it's something we do together, we plan together, and that very planning binds us together. But our abstaining on the day she's fertile doesn't change the nature of the act we engage in together on the days we know she's infertile. We're not thwarting the nature of the act. We're not violating its end or function just because we've timed it on the day we know she's infertile. But we noted the reasons given by the church, um, multiple documents can include social reasons, eugenic reasons, health reasons, economic reasons, many reasons. And the church doesn't specify what those are, though the church does warn against selfishness. Um, I taught you know, about the, the pursuit of the comfortable middle-class lifestyle is we can be so committed to having the perfect middle-class lifestyle here in the state, say, that we presume that the number of children can't be something that interfere with that. You know, we couldn't have our two holidays to Barbados a year if we had a third child, so a third child is unthinkable. Um, rather than thinking, actually, Having multiple children is normal, and my lifestyle should be structured around financially viewing children as normal. And the exact balancing of that, a pastor should in our preaching talk about generosity, but the ultimate application of it is validly down to the conscience of the couple. And when we use the word like generosity in that context, when you're generous, you're going beyond the measure of the law. You're going beyond what's required. And many couples can choose to be generous in having another child, even if they think actually they don't feel required under duty to have another child. That was your specific question. Yeah, I mean, you're explaining very well that my real, real problem was should they have, have the couple refrain when the, the, um, the woman's father, should they also refrain when she's not father? So that they, the only way they have the act, the sexual act, is when they want to have a child. And within that process, the, the, their unity aspect also together. Okay, so this year, my wife and I, we've thought about it, we've talked about it. This year, we're certain we shouldn't have another child. Therefore, we won't have sex at all this year. 
Is that kind of what you're flagging as a scenario? Yeah, given the, the fact that this, the, the sexual act has an insuperability of union appropriation. And so the point we're going to try and come back to in these notes is engaging in the sexual act even knowing that we're infertile at this time, doing that doesn't violate the nature of the act. When I sleep, I'm still a rational being. I haven't ceased to be a rational being. I haven't lost my rational nature by going to sleep. In a similar way, the, the sexual act remains ordered to procreation even on the days when the woman isn't fertile. That's just what the act is about in its nature. Just as I continue to be a rational being even when I'm asleep. To intend to go into the act knowing that it will not achieve its end. Let's come back to that later in the lecture. Maybe come back to that tomorrow. So, did you have a. Well, just a brief kind of clarification then. When you enter into the sexual act, like it appears when the woman is fertile, you don't know 100% that you will conceive at that time. So it's not a, I mean, that's just one help, perhaps helpful clarification to keep in mind. You never know 100% that you will achieve that end of procreation when you enter into a sexual act. It's never guaranteed. The meaning of the act is always that. Right. But the realization, the actualization of that end isn't guaranteed in any case. We'll come back to this question and you know we've got a couple lectures on this. It's good to keep asking the question until we feel more comfortable with the answer. Okay, page five. So here, I am summarizing the structure of Smith's analysis, or at least I'm attempting to do justice to it here. So, title this page, Respecting the Purposes Built into Our Nature and into Our Organs. And again, quoting Humanavitae, there's a need for reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural functions. So Smith argues, an organ has a function that it's naturally ordered towards. This function can be discerned by observing the purpose in fact it accomplishes when healthy and functioning properly. So the eye sees, the ear hears. Now, just to pause there, if I look at a blind person with an unhealthy eye, I'm going to struggle to see, I'm going to struggle to understand what an eye is about, yeah? So I look at a healthy example, and that shows me the function of the organ. Similarly with a hearing. If I examine someone who's deaf, I'm going to struggle to understand what the ear is about. I struggle, I, I examine a, a healthy organ to see what the organ's about. Okay, the tongue. 
Now, the tongue has a dual function. It both speaks and eats. It doesn't have one function, it has two. So not all bodily organs have one function. Um, the genital organs have a, also a dual function. Procreation, as we said, the whole structure of the sexual acts is ordered towards procreation. But also it has a function of uniting the couple in a total self-gift. Actually, we should add mutual self-gift there, yes. But there isn't any greater physical union. See, the reason a young boy and a young girl should keep themselves chaste is so that when they get to their wedding night, they have something to give to their spouse that they haven't given to others. That there is a gift, a total gift, a physical gift, that is going to be unique to that other person. Pleasure. So, as noted in other lectures we've looked at, pleasure, as with all human actions, there are distinct pleasures that accompany the healthy, proper use of organs. So, you know, when, my, when I look out, seeing, there's a type of delight I get from seeing, a type of pleasure that is proper to that. I hear something pleasant to the ear. There's a type of pleasure that goes with that. Different pleasures for different actions. Nonetheless, pleasure is not the purpose per se. Rather, it accompanies and completes the activity. Evolution. Did you pick up um, her reference to evolution? It's fairly brief, but, but significant in this regard, in terms of the scientific, the biological background to her analysis here. So say, evolution supports the notion that bodily parts have a teleo teleology, a function, because natural selection, if we follow that school of evolution, adapts each specific organ in order to be useful in a particular environment. So rabbit ears are big to let them hear predators. Leopard legs are long to run faster after prey. The human appendix is small because it's redundant. You know, if you had a large appendix but it didn't serve any function, you would use energy in it and that would put you at an evolutionary disadvantage. Yeah, so that the notion of natural selection means organs adapt to the environment, organs have a function proper to that creature in that environment. And so in that context, what I've said there in bold, the procreative and unitive purposes of the human genitals must therefore serve a broader human fulfillment that that fits into an evolutionary perspective of all life, but therefore of human life. Now, more structurally particular in her analysis. Point three. There's no moral shame in having an organ that fails to function that I feel, need feel no guilt about having poor eyesight. You know, I, I have poor eyesight, I need to wear glasses, 
I don't need to feel to confess that, um, the fact I've got bad eyesight. Um, point four, there's nothing wrong in using an organ that is not achieving its function or full function. So there's nothing sinful in partially seeing with a poor eye. There's nothing sinful in using my tongue to eat, even if it cannot function to speak. So imagine I've got a speech impediment, and the speech dimension of my tongue I'm never really able to, to use. But I can still use the heating, eating dimension of my tongue. The fact that one meaning is used and one isn't is fine. I haven't caused myself to not be able to speak properly. Whereas if I cut my tongue off because I didn't want to speak anymore, because everyone I met was so useless and disagreeable, I don't want to speak to anybody ever again, um, I would be directly attacking not just the function of the organ, but the human function that is built into that. Jimmy, sorry. Yeah, so is that a good example? Um, as you're pointing it out, or as you are describing a fuller use of it, I suppose we would say there is a general duty to restore our organs to function um, as we need them in human interaction. So a bit like my cutting the tongue out, if I decided that actually everybody I've met at the PCJ is just so ugly, I don't want to look at them anymore. And so I threw my glasses away. Um, I would then bump into things I wouldn't be able to do. Um, I can't even tell. I can just about tell you're still there. But um, that I have a duty for my human functioning, my social interaction, my loving of my neighbor, to actually restore my eyesight to function. But when I'm in my bathroom, shaving, showering, I don't need to always have glasses on. It's not a sin to not have glasses on. Um, and I'd say by analogy, you can have, a couple can have sexual intercourse, both when they have both meanings of the act currently actualized, but also when 
one meaning of the act is present, the unitive. They haven't caused the procreative to be violated. They haven't caused her to be infertile, but they know she's infertile. I'm shaving my face knowing I can't see fully, but I haven't violated my eyes in that context, not wearing glasses. I've got some other analogies I'm going to come on to later. Maybe those will help clarify. There's, there's a, a whole structure of the argument here, so let's try and see the whole thing together, okay? So, point five on the page here. <coughs> well, I've kind of already said. So, there is something wrong in deliberately thwarting the natural ordination of an act. Why? Because we must respect the purposes built into our nature. To damage my tongue so that I cannot speak is to violate not merely my tongue, but the human and personal significance that speech involves. Okay, page six. The, um, we're barely gonna get through this page today, so what's that mean? Um, I think I will spend our next lecture looking again at Janet Smith, and we won't, we won't even aim to cover Griset in the next lecture. So Griset's gonna be the lecture after that. So in terms of the reading you need to do to parallel the lecture, um, don't worry about um, having to read Griset for the next lecture. Is that clear? Which means, coincidentally, you don't have to read over Thanksgiving. Isn't that nice for you? Yes. Okay, so, page six of the notes. The perverted faculty argument. Um, so you might have read the article I put on the bibliography that I wrote with this title. Um, as I say, Smith's approach can be seen as a highly developed and improved version of the traditional perverted faculty argument. Um, she also labels it the physiological argument. Um, now, the physiological argument per se is biologically structured, whereas Smith's analysis is much broader. It's kind of the personal faculty, the personal function of sex not just the biological. So I see that a classic preconciliar statement of the perverted faculty analysis is as follows. The end of the sexual faculty can be deduced from the activity of coitus terminates once the sperm is deposited. You know, the, without wishing to be too graphic here, things stop once that has happened. That would therefore be the indication, the measure, that is the end of the action. If you're only looking at it physically. Therefore, devices or chemicals to prevent the achievement of this end state, so 
i.e. contraceptives, are wrong because of the prevention of the end state. Yeah, so what is sex about? Sex is about depositing sperm at the right place. A condom is wrong because it stops the depositing of sperm in the right space, place. That isn't Janet Smith's analysis because that is a purely physical analysis. Yeah, but it is an old style argument. And there are canon lawyers who um, debate whether if a couple only ever, if a young couple marry, they only ever have sex with a condom, whether they've actually consummated the marriage. Um, so that's, that's a real question. I'm not a canon lawyer, thank God, but um, that would be following this very physical structure of the, the nature of the act. Now, more broadly, as Smith analyzes it, the argument is structured. The sexual faculty has a purpose, namely procreation and union. Any action that violates this purpose is simple. And I note this type of analysis is used by the catechism in its analysis of the sin of masturbation. So, quoting the catechism, the deliberate use of the sexual faculty for whatever reason outside of marriage is essentially contrary to its purpose. For here, sexual pleasure is sought outside of the sexual relationship which is demanded by the moral order and in which the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation um, in the context of true love is achieved. So there the catechism is saying, what is the purpose of the sexual faculty? Mutual love, self-giving, procreation. If you use the faculty outside of that meaning, you have violated the faculty. And the whole outline of Smith's analysis is you haven't just violated a physical faculty, you violated the body, you violated the person that has that body. You've violated, in violating the sexual faculty, you violated the person who has that faculty because it matters that much to me. Then quote Smith, the physiological argument, i.e. the perverted faculty argument, is not sufficient in itself to warrant an absolute condemnation of contraception. The physiological argument is nonetheless a part of any argument that contraception is intrinsically wrong. So I've been trying to say these biological processes matter because they indicate to us something about the human person. They don't matter just as things in themselves. So link this with this is the question of what the word natural means when we talk about natural law. So her analysis, as I say there, is a broad, multifaceted analysis. And this broader definition of natural is what distinguishes her from older perverted faculty arguments. To repeat, she draws on John Paul II's personalism and his theology of the body. 
So natural, therefore, is not solely what refers to the functional integrity of the organs, but whatever facilitates the well-being of anything, both in its parts and as a whole. Also refers to natural as being what is in accord with the very being of a thing, or what is in accord with the natural inclinations of a thing, or perhaps most significantly, what tends to promote what is good for that thing. Which takes us back to the Aristotelian thing of the, the telos, the end that is a flourishing. Yeah. That the end of the sexual act brings a flourishing, a completion of the person in that act. And where does that put contraception? Well, defining it, contraception is all acts which attempt to impede procreation, both chosen as a means to an end and those chosen as ends. This includes acts that precede intercourse, acts that accompany intercourse, and acts directed to the natural consequences of intercourse. So as means, you use the pill to make your husband not complain. So that you don't want it in itself, but you're using it as a means, which is different from using it as an end, using the pill because you don't want to have children. Preceding intercourse, so the pill is an act that precedes intercourse. The condom is an act that accompanies intercourse, whereas the morning after pill, which often is frequently abortifacient, but not necessarily, is directed to the natural consequences of intercourse. So there we've defined what contraception is. Okay, so that's all I'm going to aim to achieve today. Three minutes left. Um, so, what have we looked at today? We've looked at recapping what a natural law argument is structured like. This question of whether you can deduce the law from nature, or whether with Griset you somehow just get the law by itself. And then we've looked at, in Janet Smith, this whole detailed looking at the human person, the body of the person, the organs of the person, all as indicating how the actions of a person have a proper end that needs to be respected, acknowledged in the various acts of the person. And we'll come back to that after Thanksgiving. <laughs>